The first thing you notice is the noise in there and the activity and the kids just interacting with each other. Some of them are listening to music, they're, they're drawing, they're writing posters. Just full of color, because they were drawing these posters for like uh, social justice. And they had marker pens everywhere. And I just thought this is, you know, there's real sort of life and vitality. My name is Mary O'Hara. I'm a writer, a journalist, and founder of Project Twisted. When I got my first library card, we were living in a two-bedroomed, tiny little house with no inside toilet, no bathroom. You know, the kitchen was basically a hut, you know, hung, hanging off the side of the house. Uh, so there was no space because, you know, at that time I had five brothers and sisters. I would then go on to have six brothers and sisters when we moved into public housing. I think I was always dreaming. I mean, absolutely always dreaming. And I mean, we were in a situation where literally sometimes we were trapped in our houses because, you know, if, if a bomb had gone off or if the army were, you know, blocking off the street, West Belfast, the part that I lived in, was, I think, the poorest in Western Europe and, you know, right at the epicenter of the Civil War as well. So a lot of the time, you know, the streets were blocked off. Buses were being burned, bombs were going off, people were being shot. And the library was just like this incredibly peaceful space that you could go into. And the only thing anybody in there cared about was giving you a book. You know, that was it. Growing up like that, with those quite narrow horizons, you know, we didn't go anywhere, we didn't go on holidays, we didn't have a car, we didn't have a bike, we didn't do anything. So the way that someone like me opened my horizons was through books. That sense of feeling trapped, it can do a lot of things to a person and different people react differently, I think. And for me, it was I dreamt my way out of it. Like I had to believe that this wasn't all there was. And because I was a sort of voracious reader, I really didn't know that this wasn't all there was. And I was at the very start reading books like Little Women, um, you know, where the protagonists are all young girls. And Joe March is like a hero, I think, for almost any young girl who's who reads. And and I, you know, and she went off to the big city and she was doing everything. And I just thought, yeah, I could do that, you know. So for me, it was oh my God, this is possible, you know, this exists. Like I used to want to go and live with my teachers because I imagined that they had walls lined with books and stuff like that, you know. I always asked them, do you have books in your house? Because <laughs> it seemed so weird to me. So when the library was closed, as it would have been sometimes because the violence was bad, then I would have been really agitated. Um, so like I was able to walk up there when I was whatever, six, I think, when I got my first library card and, you know, I was dead proud of it, you know. I could get three books out at once and they'd let me sit in there for as long as I wanted to sit in there. And I had the same experience with school, though, you know, my teachers were the same. 
Any of us that wanted access to books had access to books. I think the single most defining moment for me was the way the education was set up in Northern Ireland at the time. There was a filter applied when you were 11 years old and it was an exam called the 11 plus. And basically you just, you trained like a robot to try and pass this thing for the best part of a year before you sat it at 11 years old. And that exam would decide whether you went to a grammar school, which was, you know, academically focused or whether you went to a secondary school, which expectations weren't that you were going to go to university. So there was a great pressure to pass that exam. And I'd passed every mock exam that ever given me, like with flying colours. But the day of sitting the exam, some shitty stuff had gone on in my universe and I didn't make the cut on the day. And that kind of like rocked the foundations for me because I realised that at 11, I was being told that I'm not good enough. And I don't think any 11-year-old should be told that they're not good enough to be whatever it is they want to be. But I was fortunate because there was a school nearby that took in the broadest diversity of um, people, usually from poor communities. In the British system, at the time, they were championing something called comprehensive education. The idea was to not have this kind of cutoff line at 11 where the academically bright kids were filtered off to a grammar school and everyone else was dumped somewhere that was under-resourced and didn't show any ambition on their behalf and say, OK, well, what if we have mixed ability schools, mixed background schools, and then, you know, that should be like a really democratising thing. The fact that, you know, I had a school to go to and a local library where I could get books out of meant that other worlds were opened up to me very intimately as well. So, you know, it's just you and the book. You're not watching something with other people. Um, you're introduced to the fact that people exist in different kinds of circumstances to yourself. Um, and that can be incredibly liberating because, you you know, there's a bit of you that won't shut down. There's a bit of you that wants to just devour everything that you can about the world outside your own experience. seeing in terms of trends in literacy in the U.S.? How are we doing? And how are we doing compared to other countries? Um, mostly we're not doing well at all. My name is Pedro Noguera. I'm a professor of education at UCLA. So let's start by getting you to just tell us a little bit about the Center for the Transformation of Schools. Yeah, so the idea behind the center was to first acknowledge that uh, the way schools have been organized in many uh, parts of the country don't really address the needs of students, and we have clear evidence they're not working real well. Um, not just in terms of outcomes like achievement, but in terms of how engaged kids are and how excited they are about learning. I think schools literally dumb. make some kids dumb. Um, that is, through miseducation, by focusing on their deficits, you reinforce a sense of helplessness when we should be doing the opposite. We should be using education to empower, to inspire, to motivate. I think when knowledge and education is removed from the experience of the student, it alienates them. And it actually, over time, makes them feel dumb 
and makes them reject that kind of learning. When kids can see themselves, can understand how knowledge, how literacy is used uh, to express themselves, to name their reality, then it's embraced. And I've seen that over and over again. Literacy is central. It's central because we know that literacy can be a source of power. We also know that many kids uh, come away from school with very weak literacy skills. It, you know, the evidence is pretty clear. Kids are not writing enough in college um, or in high school. Part of it is teachers are, you know, if you're teaching 125 different kids in a day, you know, you sign a five-page paper, now you're taken out for the next several weeks grading those papers. So we have a structural challenge. You know, how do you get kids writing more and giving them feedback on their writing? And that says more about the way we approach literacy than about the, the people we're trying to teach. When we focus on literacy to empower people, which means giving voice to their experience, to their lives, they become more critical, they become more engaged politically, um, they are less easy to fool and to trick through fake news and political advertising. A well-educated public, while it's critical for democracy, is also a threat to uh, politicians who count on people not voting and count on people not caring because they don't believe politics can solve their problems. Poverty is a kind of central concern, and, and the reason why is because uh, we don't do much to address poverty in America. Um, and so the needs of kids who are poor, uh, whether those be health needs or nutrition or housing, always impact their ability to learn. Um, and we ignore those needs. Uh, we only focus on the learning, and we don't give schools the resources they need to respond to those needs that kids bring. And consequently, those schools struggle, as the students struggle. There's a lot of complicated things that go on when you're growing up in a community that's impoverished. Uh, very often you don't grow up with the kind of self-assurance and self-confidence that is naturally instilled in people from better off backgrounds. That can often mean that you don't say things even when you know them. You don't express yourself in the same way that is deemed to be socially acceptable. The voices get shut out. Wherever poverty is concentrated, what we see is schools that are failing, right, um, throughout the country. And that's true in urban areas, rural areas, suburban areas. It almost doesn't matter. It, it's true in white communities. It's true in black and Latino, Native American. Well, I mean, the research is, is pretty clear, you know, that, that uh, despite the broad array of problems, there are lots of examples of schools and programs that, that do work and serve kids, um, even some of the most disadvantaged kids, well. And so part of our work is kind of drawing attention to those places and kind of lifting out what are they doing that makes them successful. When literacy is tied to helping people understand the sources of their oppression, then they become, they embrace literacy. And that's the reason why I don't believe poverty is an obstacle to learning by any means. There's lots of evidence is that kids who are poor can learn under the right conditions. It doesn't mean we shouldn't address poverty. It does mean that we can't use that as an excuse for not ed educating kids, and we do. Um, we write off um, why certain communities, uh, uh, th th why kids are not performing, instead of asking, what have we done wrong here? There's a cultural thing that kind of 
takes hold of you, which is expectations aren't set in the way that they're set for kids from other backgrounds. There was a limiting of expectations often in the sense that I was always told to get my head out of the clouds. You know, and I'm like, what's wrong with my head being in the clouds? You know, what the hell is wrong with that? And I rebelled against that very young, I think. You know, as a preteen, I was pretty sparky because I didn't like people telling me what to do. What we should be focused on in education is using education to uh, enable people, students, to have more control over their lives, right? Um, because when that's the primary focus, then what, we, what they learn changes, how they learn it changes, uh, how they use knowledge changes. So I'll give you an example of school I was working with up in Sacramento. And this is a failing high school that, you know, low literacy and, and math scores, and um, they're under threat um, by the school district to be taken over because of poor performance. And I'm given a tour by the principal, and he's lamenting the problems in his schools. And he's blame, attributing the problems to the teachers and says these teachers don't, they're, they're not effective, they don't care about the kids. And, I, and as we're visiting classrooms, it's clear it's kind of boring, listless, and kids are not motivated and engaged. And then he takes me, he says, hey, we have something special going on today. He takes me to a room uh, where there's a poet mentor who's not part of the faculty, but a community member who's teaching poetry to kids. And she starts by saying, uh, you're going to write poetry today about your lives. She said, I'm going to give you a prompt. A prompt is just a way to get you started. She said, the prompt is, I'm not who you think I am. She proceeds to model. She says, you think you see someone who's a professional because I'm all dressed up today and I'm ready to go to work. But in fact, I'm one paycheck away from poverty. I have to take care of my brother who's in a wheelchair. I have to take care of my mother. If I don't pay my bills, I'll be homeless too. She said, I bet you that there's more to your stories than meets the eye. And so she said, I want you to write about it. So the kids get to work and they start writing. And for the next 20 minutes, you see kids writing page after page. And then she stops them. She says, okay, stop now. I want to hear some of what you came up with. Who's ready to share? And throughout the room, kids are shooting up their hands and sharing their stories. And the stories are all very personal, very powerful. Um, and what's amazing is even as they share their stories, uh, which are always stories of hardship that they are experiencing, um, the kids respond by coming up and giving each other hugs and embracing them and saying, we got your back, you know, we're with you. And uh, I sit through the whole class, and at the end of the class, she said, okay, we're out of time. So I'll be back next week. Bring what you started on today, because next week you'll revise it, because you don't do your best work on your first draft. So I turned to the principal. I said, well, here's the solution to your problem. And he said, what's that? I said, don't you see the way the kids are engaged in writing? I said, this is what can happen in all your classrooms, because kids are naturally curious. And you know what we know? When you feed the curiosity of kids, kids become willing learners. And I know that if I tap into the natural curiosity and the imagination of kids, they will become invested as learners. And he stood there in disbelief because he couldn't even understand what he saw and how it was relevant to what he was trying to do. And I think that speaks to the problem in many of our schools. I think at the local level, there's actually more potential um, because um, I think there's a lot that mayors and nonprofits and um, 
universities and churches can do to begin to respond better than we have right now to the needs of poor children and families. And nonprofits, particularly nonprofits that are close, have closer ties to the communities where they work, who understand the community and who can counter the deficit mindset you often find amongst educators who don't believe that children from certain neighborhoods are capable. Um, and so nonprofits can be a bridge in addressing that, that mindset. My name is Tim Whitaker. I'm the executive director of Muddy Writers. Um, I was a journalist for 30 years, a lot of different places. I was the editor of a number of publications. The last 14 years before coming to Mighty Writers, I was the editor of Philadelphia Weekly, which is an alternative newspaper. Um, and when that started to buckle, I took a look around and said, what can I do? The only thing I know how to do is write. Right out of college, I taught uh, school for a couple of years, and I was not good at it, but I remember really liking the kids. So I said, I wonder if I can combine those two things, right? So I heard about a program that Dave Edgars, the writer, had in San Francisco. Um, and so I went to San Francisco, and I sat with him for a, few, a little bit, and then I watched his program, came back to Philly, we scrambled it a bit because we really we wanted to go in like the hardest hit neighborhoods. That was our idea. So we got started in 2009 at this location um, and then over the course of the next bunch of years we opened um, a number of other um, locations. So now we have seven around the city. Um, and each, each one has an after-school program, writing workshops, uh, college prep, team scholars, mentorships, so it's robust. Next time on Project Twist It, we'll go deeper into the world of mighty writers and see what's working. We'll give you a hint. A lot of it has to do with getting out of the way and letting the kids take charge. Right On is a production by Project Twisted, Sandra Barron, and Little Everywhere, and executive produced by Mary O'Hara. Music is composed by Jessica Huber. It's supported by the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. Please check out more at projecttwistit.com. Project Twisted.